Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Nigel Thurlow. Nigel is the former chief of Agile Toyota. He's the originator of Scrum, the Toyota way. Uh, and he is also a co-originator and co-author of uh, the, f- the book, The Flow System. Nigel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Richard. Nice to be here. And so The Flow System is... Uh, well, you tell us what the flow system is, right? Maybe it's best if you you you. <laughs> well, the you first thing is telling what n- the, the first thing I'm going to tell you what is not, because the thing behind me is not a uh, a framework. It is not a methodology. It's not a one size fits all approach. It's not a uh, uh, any form of prescription. It is actually a system of learning and understanding. Um, it was built, or it was first conceived when I was still working at Toyota, I have a lifelong sort of love and passion with Toyota and, and uh, have worked for them on and off for many years. I've been left now for the last couple of years. But we wanted to find what was missing in trying to solve what people call transformation when they're working in organizational change initiatives. And we can come back to that word transformation later. I have issues with that. Um and we knew we were heading into this world of complexity or complexity was becoming much more spoken about and known about. And it's been around for some years. Um, and uh, we realized there was there was some elements missing and that, uh, you know, lean thinking or the Toyota production system couldn't solve some of these things alone. So I started drawing some what people call pillars normally. And I started sort of figuring out well, what's missing. And 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 initially, I, the the where complexity sits, I sort of had agility in there, and I went, no, 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 that's not right for different reasons. Uh, and we knew leadership was a huge challenge and a problem out there in the in the world, and we knew that team teaming and teamwork was being ignored. And so then I started to work closely with Professor Turner from the University of North Texas, who's my other co-author, and then Brian Rivera Ponch, who I've worked with on and off for a few years, who comes out of the U.S. military. And he'd been involved in high performance teaming training. And Professor Turner is the sort of professor of uh, complexity and team science at UNT. So this was sort of a, a coming together, fortuitous coming together. And we started to evolve what we thought was missing. And we actually realized that most books and teaching out there and most methods and approaches a very single lens. There's, you know, there's all these airport novels on leadership you can buy. You can read in a couple of hours on some boring flight on a plane, which usually you give away after you've read them or something. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That a nonsense. Uh, and then there's, there's, there's very little out there on team science. There's books on locking people in escape rooms and doing team building exercises and things, which is nothing to do with building high performing teams, by the way, because it's not contextual. Uh, and there was very little out there on complexity. And in fact, you know, Dave's own book on Kenevin only got sort of pushed out this year. And I was fortunate to, to, to scribble something in there with John Turner. And so we, we started should say, to realize- Dave, for those who are not familiar, Dave Snowden, another big, you know, a, a, well, major figure, perhaps the greatest figure in the field of complexity thinking. Yeah, the creator of Kenevin and, and various other amazing theories. I should have grabbed his book off my shelf to wave it at the screen for him. But um and so we realized there was some, the, the problem was that it wasn't that the, the knowledge wasn't out there, it's the knowledge was very disparate and disconnected. And actually what we needed to do is bring all these fields of knowledge together. And so when you look at the picture of the flow system, those aren't actually pillars, they're helixes or also commonly called helices, depending on your preference, both words are correct. And it's actually the interconnected, intertwined nature 
of complexity thinking, distributed leadership and team science, when we bring those fields of study together and interconnect them and intertwine them in a contextual manner, and we still have this foundation of lean thinking based upon so many years I've been engaged with Toyota, that we felt was necessary to combine these things so people could understand how to apply these many tools, methods, techniques, and approaches contextually in their situation. So there are no one-size-fits-all frameworks. And actually, I was speaking the other day where people are desperate for templates. They want to buy a template, whether it's safe or something else, and slap it on an organization. But paraphrasing John Turner the other day when, when he and I were talking, Many of these templates that are offered by, you know, big consultancy with expensive PowerPoints tend to uh, require more energy than the benefit achieved to be able to follow the template. So you put this vast amount of energy in to get the template in your organization and working, but you don't actually get a greater level of benefit out than the energy you've put in. And and so what we wanted to do was to show people that, hey, these are the things we think you should understand and maybe you should think we sh- you should spend some time learning about. Then you should figure out what you need to apply in your organization contextually to enable you to get the changes that you want or the improvements that you need within your organization. And as we were moving much more into this complexity field and people are all running around two years ago going, VUCA, VUCA, VUCA which I thought was some growth on your foot you got as a kid in the swimming baths uh, or the swimming pool, yeah? You know what I'm talking about, you're British. So, uh, um, But then I sort of realized, oh, oh, they're all talking about things being volatile and, and you know, uncertain and complex and ambiguous. And, and so that was a phrase that came out of the military. So we wanted to address this and to sort of say to people that, we're, you know, the flow system is contextual and that it's primarily contextual or conceptualized for complex complex, ambiguous, and rapidly changing disruptive environments rather than dealing with the status quo. If you want to deal with the status quo, there's plenty of linear causality sort of approaches you can take uh, in those sort of, you know, simple or clear domains that what people sometimes commonly call best practices. And we're not trying to address that. What we're trying to address is that once you move into very complex organizations, and most organizations are complex because the complexity is human derived as opposed to actually having complex problems to solve. But then mm. there's this, this whole realm of complexity and complexity thinking. And the current tools and frameworks and approaches are not equipped. They're really equipped to deal with truly complex problems. And so we wanted to bring a system of learning and understanding so people could study, understand and learn and then decide how to address their contextual problems. Because if you're working in automotive manufacturing, some of the world I've been in, that's very different to frontline healthcare or probably disaster, you know, fighting fires when we've got wildfires or software programming is very different to operating on patients in the operating room. And as I said in a talk a few weeks ago, please don't use Scrum in the operating room. People will not survive. Richard. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. So that that lays it out. Uh, and I, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that's kind of a very different proposition for people, right? It's we're laying out a system of, of understanding and learning, uh, but you've got to do the work to figure out how you're going to apply this stuff. I, we're not going to give you the five steps to enterprise agility or whatever it is somebody might want, or the, the, you know, the 10 steps to team effectiveness like that doesn't exist anywhere in the book you just lay out the science 
Uh, and as you say, you draw the linkages between these, these three domains, complexity thinking, distributed leadership, and, and team science. Uh, and then you're kind of inviting the reader to, yeah, as you say, figure it out for themselves. Now, what, what's been the response to, I suppose, inviting people <laughs> into that mode of, uh, I suppose, changing their organizations? So, you know, it, it's interesting. and I can't, for obvious reasons, give you company names, but uh, two very, very large corporations have since reached out to me since the pandemic's easing in certain places. And I know we've still got some major challenges to go as we're recording this. Um, but as the as the as things start to shift focus to now, how do we rebuild our organizations? How do we get back to what we were doing before and how do we uh, you know, improve growth and build, rebuild economies? Uh, two very large organizations, one an American corporation, one a German corporation, have reached out to me and have asked for uh, my direct coaching and support and the coaching and support of people within the Flow Consortium because they're looking to break out of the echo chamber, uh, you know, the typical agile echo chamber. It's not that agile is a bad thing. And being agile is an excellently good thing. Um, but that's the whole point. We become agile. Ag agility is emergent. We don't sort of do a method or approach and magically agile appears, you know. So there are many approaches to this. But what, they, what they're finding is that they've been trying to do this thing for a while and they're not getting the results, the expected benefits. They've been, you know, doing the come by our ceremonies or the, you know, the, the daily stand-ups or the daily scrums and all this other stuff. They've been following the guide and the book and at the end of two years, they're still not recognizing, realizing the benefits. It comes back to that, the amount of energy they've put in to be really good at following a methodology hasn't, revealed, hasn't yielded uh, greater benefits in the, from the consumption of energy. And so now they're looking to figure out what's wrong. And context tends to be part of the problem. And the other thing tends to be human-derived human complexity because we build organizational designs that are ill-equipped to actually deliver value to customers. They may be great to deliver power and, and, and prestige to executives. Um, and, and I go into that quite a bit in some com other conversations I have about the whole greed factor. But they're ill-equipped to deliver the value out of the organization. From a practitioner point of view, we've been selling, the book's selling at 100 copies a week. So I don't know if that, I think that that sort of, for this type of book, that's quite a good number of sales. And we yeah. had to do a second yeah. second print run at the beginning of the year because we were the, the warehouse was running out of copies. So the book's published through UNT, University of North Texas, through their, their book publishing arm. Um, but we had a lot, we retained the creative ownership of the book for reasons that, you know, we wanted to make sure that we could, decide how it was used in the future. Um, and so we were involved in printing the book with, uh, with the commercial printers. And so we're having a job keeping up with, because it's like this lead time for book, you know, we're getting to lean thinking. There's this lead time of getting the book printed. But uh, so the demand has been pretty significant. Uh, we developed a, a full online training course around it, which took John and I about a thousand hours to put together. Uh, that's been highly regarded. And, and again, I can't tell you the name of the organizations, but I had a major organization that's based in the news world contact me only this week asking about a private cohort for their internal people to start to learn these concepts. So the reception's been great from deep thinkers, people who want to get away from the 353 of Scrum. Not, and again, as a professional Scrum trainer, I have nothing against Scrum at all. And I need to keep my friends at Scrum Org happy and, and not upset them too much by saying things. But no, we've got 
So from that point of view, we've got a lot of practitioners from the Scrum world, the Agile world, the systems thinking, the organizational design world, digging into the content. And the reception has been very, very positive from them. And of course, we're now starting to see organizations that want something a little bit different. However, the Achilles heel of what we've created is there's no prescription. There's no playbook. There's no ABC one, two, three. Now I can give some people basic fundamental teaching, like go figure out how to be lean before you try to figure out how to be agile. And there's some good reasons for that. Cause if you don't, if you can't see what's wrong in your organization, you don't know what you're going to need, you need to fix. So there's some basic fundamental practices there, which you don't need, you know, a book to tell you to go do, you know, um, you just need to go have a look. Um, but then the challenge is that, you know, big corps want, you know, a nice playbook from one of the usual sort of uh, big four or five consulting houses, lots of PowerPoint decks, lots of armies of people sitting around writing PowerPoint decks, telling them it's all going to be well. And they want to outsource their accountability and their responsibility. And that's, I often describe that as what you want versus what you need. What you want is to outsource it all and let somebody else sort it out for you. What you need is actually to be participatory and engaged, get out of groupthink mode and start talking to your, your people in your organization. Um, that's not a popular message. You know, the, the, the no one size fits all approach doesn't sit well with certain C-suite folks who just want to sign a check and give a purchase order out. But as I say, there is a glimmer of hope because there are some organizations that either know me, have engaged me in my past life or have come, come to sort of seek me out more recently and ask me if I would coach them and support them and help them. So I think as we move forward and as organizations realize that Scrum and Agile type things are becoming a commodity and, and actually just buying the commodity won't solve their organizational design challenges, won't solve truly complex problems, and actually unless they start to build effective teams, and when we talk about distributed leadership, part of that is about true empowerment, psych, safety, active listening. But also part of that is about it's the interconnected, interrelated nature, of course, is the teaming aspect. Because if leadership, they call themselves leaders and they call themselves a leadership team, and they're typically neither one or the other. And, and so we're trying to help them understand what leadership truly means without being horrible and, and brutal to them. And sometimes I'm a tad blunt spoken. but also teaching them that leadership means becoming an effective team. And then this collective leadership from the organization that guides the organization in that direction. So from a reception point of view, practitioner-wise, very good. Um, I think our peer review, a lot of the material has been peer reviewed, so we've had some really good feedback on the peer review side. A lot of people like yourself are wanting to talk about this sort of different departure. I think it will take some time for organizations to realize that the templates they're being sold, and they're highly profitable for the creators of the templates, um, aren't yielding the benefits they wanted. Then they'll start to realize that it's not the tools that's the problem. It's the way they're approaching the challenges and the problems and the contextual nature of them and the fact they're ex expecting us to hold hammer thing. Everything looks like an let's run around beating things vigorously and violently, and they wonder why they end up with a bloodied mess. Um, one of my slides I'm using at the moment compares a toothbrush and a hammer in this thing called bounded applicability. And there's old, you know, Tom from Tom and Jerry with all these broken teeth. And, you know, a, a hammer and a toothbrush are both, both great tools. Both have great utility. 
but not useful in mixing them up because then you get unexpected results. So taking a set of tools and expecting them to magically solve all your problems in an organization is really the wrong way to go. And this bounded applicability really just talks about the limit of utility and usefulness of a tool. And there's a point where the cost-benefit ratio starts to go negative when you continually use the wrong tool. And just using it more vigorously and energetically doesn't mean you're actually going to get better results. And that tends to be what's happening with sort of the, some of the framework nonsense out there at the moment. They think if they more vigorously insist that you follow the teachings of the framework, things will get better. And, yeah. uh, and unfortunately, that just isn't true, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you end up uh, not with clean teeth, but no teeth. Yeah, no, it, uh, no, it makes a lot of sense. And, and, and well, we've talked about the leadership teams here, sort of, you know, that's where we went to and the buyers, you know, they, they, want, they want the approach, they want to sign off on the PowerPoint and give the PO out. Um, and that's something you devote, you know, the, the major section of the book is one of the strands, of one of the helix strands is this idea of distributed leadership. And I think most people kind of at some, some level understand that, right? We want to push leadership down to the organization, but you go into a great deal of depth into the different, styles of leadership and even even how we apply this word leadership right and the fact that we tend to apply it to individuals so i just wonder if we sort of go a layer down into into leadership and what are the sort of central messages of 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 this um you know this point you're making about distributed leadership so when people talk about distributed leadership they often they talk about delegation and delegation and empowerment are two different things of course one is I give you the right to go do something, but I'm going to come shout at you when it goes wrong, which is more delegation. And that usually is, I don't want to do the work, so you can do the work, but when you don't do it right, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some, uh, some undue pressure, uh, which blows the whole psychological safety side of thing. But when we talk about distributed leadership, we talk about reducing the power distance index, which is work by Herf Hofstede, which is a gentleman out of the Netherlands. He talked about it from a sort of a society point of view, but we talk about it we need to move the decisions. And, and actually, um, David Marquette talks about this when he talks about turn the ship around. He talks about, uh, you know, commander's intent. We actually re rebadge that to leader's intent because we wanted to take the word commander out of the, the, the vocabulary, the narrative, because commander sort of scares organizations a little bit. So we, we termed it leader's intent. But what we're actually doing is removing the authority to where the information is which is what David talks about in his, some of his talks. Um, and what really that means is if you look at the, the Toyota example, the people on the production line have a level of autonomy. They have a lot of psychological safety because the, the concept of an and-on cordon for people who are unfamiliar on manufacturing lines, you have a, a rope you can pull. Sometimes it's a digital button now, but it's a rope you pull, and that will stop the entire production line after a predetermined time, not normally longer than 60 seconds, gives a time to alert to a problem, gives a time to us to solve the problem. If the problem isn't solved, the production line will stop. And this is the concept of building in quality or the Japanese word, excuse me, jidoka. So that gives a level of a high level of psychological safety. But what we've done there, we've moved the authority to where the information is, the people making the decisions are the people doing the work, as opposed to the people sitting in the offices looking at those glossy decks that ABC Consulting House are creating for them. And as I said the other day, PowerPoint, PowerPoint is not a reporting tool. 
and Excel isn't a dashboard, so please stop using them for these purposes, yeah? Um, actually, you're much better off going and having a look at where the work's been done, which is the whole concept of going to Gemba or going to what the real place where the work is done. And not just taking a sightseeing trip, which is, you know, some other Japanese words I'll throw at you. Genshi Genbutsu means go and observe and take action. That's the Japanese words that you'll often hear from lean practitioners about going and seeing. But the problem is a lot of managers go and see and do nothing, which is called Genshi Kenbutsu, which is also translated in Japanese as sightseeing. So there are, you know, they're walking around the production facilities with the Nikon cameras or the Nikons taking photographs because all they are are tourists. And so basically what we're trying to do is move the authority, as I say, to the information by distributing the leadership. So we believe that leadership is a characteristic, and I think that's universally accepted. It's not a job title. You don't apply to be a leader. You become a leader. Now, there are many people with executive job titles calling themselves leaders, but they haven't actually become leaders. They just call themselves a leadership team when two things, they're rather not a team and they're certainly not leading, they're managing and telling people what to do. And so the whole concept of distributed leadership is to allow the people at the right level of the organization to make the appropriate decisions. And that's not delegation, that's true empowerment. We then have the, the concept that within a team, you have individual leaders, and everybody in the team has leadership skills. Now, some stronger than others. Sometimes some are muted because of the egocentric nature of some of the stronger voices in the team. So that this is where team training comes in, where we have to start teaching people about collaboration, communication, active listening, and these things, which are absent from any framework that says you need teams. And they say, go forth and make teams. And they give you no help or advice of, well, what does that mean? What is a team? How do we create a team? But forming, storming, norming. Well, what does that actually mean, you know? So the thing is this, that's part of what we address in team science. So we see this, this individual leadership within the teams. But then the team together forms shared mental models. They have shared cognitions, their knowledge, skills, abilities, and things that they've learned together. And then they form shared mental models when they all become aligned. And then the team provides collective leadership to the organization. If you're in a multi-team system, you've got multiple teams providing uh, uh, overall collective leadership to different elements of the organization. But what we're looking for is senior leadership to take this collective leadership as an input into their decision-making. And there'll be a book right. later this year on decision-making we're working on. So... The whole thing with leaders' intent, and as I say, this is influenced heavily by Dave Marquet's work, um, is that leaders need to give an intent of what they would like the organization to achieve. The people who are achieving that then give an intent that, yes, we understand what you want to achieve, and this is how we think we're going to work towards achieving it. And then the empowerment of those teams or groups of individuals is for them to be able to figure that out rather than be driven by nonsensical OKRs and KPIs and performance metrics and running faster in hamster wheels and uselessly getting tired, um, you know, to, to perform like some sort of, you know, monkey in an organ grinder um, to, maybe that's a bad analogy, but um, this is what we're trying to move away from and trying to see the organization as a holistic ecosystem. 
Does that yeah. sort of no, go a little bit yeah, away to it explain does. And, that? I, and, and the the key theme for me is this idea, you know, it's the, it's the leadership, right? It, it's taking it uh, as the characteristic and that we're developing leadership through the organization, whether that be collective leadership within a team, as you say, could then provide input back to the team rather than this idea, which I think is prevalent in the sort of management sort of, I don't know, zeitgeist is that we want individuals to be better leaders. And a lot of the books about is, you know, how can you, how could you, Nigel, or me, Richard, become a better leader? Uh, and I think that's something that was a really sort of strong message in the book was, no, there's this, there's this concept of leadership. And like, and how do we, how do we evolve it at a team level? And there was one section of the book, I like this idea where you, um, it, it was a bit of a tongue team emergence, leadership development and evaluation. But basically the idea is you give, you give individuals a, ta- a leadership task, you give them a chance to run with it. And then the next member of the team might give given a different leadership task. And then over the over a period, then with each individual taking on leadership of different tasks, you get this leadership emergence of the whole team where they've all had an opportunity to kind of, kind of go through a leadership training loop. And it's just done very so that's a very different way of sort of consciously thinking about developing leadership capability at a team level. Very, you know, very different uh, start, yeah. way of thinking about leadership. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is one of the key aspects, and, and I'd give all due credit to Professor Turner, John Turner, my co-creator and co-author on, on a lot of the team science stuff. This is where when people think about team building, which is typically the word they use to build good teams, they think about them, you know, doing silly exercises and retrospectives with pasta sticks and marshmallows and nonsense like that. And Guilty. they also, yeah, and we've all done it in our early agile days. I'm, you know, I did some silly things when I was learning. Um, and, uh, and then going out, locking them in the escape rooms and things of that nature. The problem is you're not teaching them what you just described, these leadership skills. We're not, gi- we're not giving them focused, valuable training to develop these skills. And the training itself needs to be continuously evaluated for effectiveness. Plus, also, you need to train teams in the context in which they are working. So, you know, I know Gareth Locke very well, and he does a lot on deep sea diving, and he's got a, a business and, and written books about the human diver and safety, uh, and, you know, and safety 2.0 and all these sort of things. And he's talked about, you know, when if you're in a deep sea diving situation, you need to be learning to be a team in that context, in that situation. If you're building things with marshmallows and, and pasta sticks or doing other, you know, putting playing cards on your forehead in a retrospective or something like that, that ain't going to help you when somebody loses air, at, 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 you know, 30 meters below the surface of the water when you can't see. You need highly trained, high performing, highly skilled, effective teams that can take both individual and collective leadership in those situations to manage whatever situation's thrown at it. When you're working in complexity or you're working in a situation which is constantly evolving a complex adaptive system, you need instincts and human behaviors and capabilities to be able to work in that environment. And when you move into an organization, hopefully it's not as dangerous as being in a deep sea diving situation or in a military conflict situation, but the same types of skills to develop the individuals into these high-performing teams are necessary. And I even I spoke in a a conversation in Brazil earlier this week, and I was saying that it's not tools that make teams. And I I actually I wrote it down. Actually, emergent learning occurs through teamwork, not in a framework. 
And so you, ta- you can take a highly capable group of people, develop them into a high-performing team, and in the absence of tools and frameworks and all the things they need, they'll figure out how to get things done. They'll figure out how to achieve great outcomes. So a lot of the focus is on how do we develop high-performing or effective teams within organizations that are highly effective at delivering value? Because most organizations that are looking at these things are for-profit, although I did have a non-profit speak to me from Belgium a few days ago. But the most organizations are delivering some form of value to somebody called a customer. A customer is defined by, very simply, it's the people who give you money. It's where your revenue comes from. Everybody else tends to be a cost. Lots of stakeholders, lots of people with opinions, uh, but they all tend to be a cost and not the the final result of the, the outcomes that you want. So we've got these people called customers who are perceiving a value. And value is perceptual. If the customer doesn't perceive value in what you're doing, it doesn't matter how valuable you think it is, it's worthless because unless the people who you call customers are providing you with revenue for this value. So what we're focused on is trying to help organizations develop the best way to deliver that value, that flow of value to people who perceive value, typically, as I say, called a customer. Um, and what we tend to find is if you've got highly motivated, highly capable individuals with shared cognition, shared mental models who have developed into a high-performing team, that's far more effective than a load of people standing up and going, come by R every morning, trying to follow a frameworks, one, two, three, A, B, C. Not that there's anything wrong, and we should probably talk about scaffolds and temporary learning support and you know things like Toyota Kata, and things like Scrum, Scrum's a behavioral pattern. I mean, they call it a framework, but if you look at it under the surface, it's PDCA with some discipline uh, and some definition around how and for we do people things. not familiar with that, that's the plan, do, check, act, cycle, right? Yeah, yeah sorry, I, I should uh, be, be careful. So, Or if they're Deming devotees, plan, do, study, act. So, so you're but right, yes. the, the whole thing is that these disciplines, these, these so-called frameworks, and so some of them are not frameworks. If you've got a gigantic big picture, safe. If you've got this giant big picture, sorry. If you've got this giant big picture, it's not a framework. Again, I said to you earlier before we all do it, when we're doing the, the, the sort of preamble before the recording, Richard, is that the best tool in the uh, toolbox for a practitioner is called a dictionary. And you really need to get out the dictionary and look at words like framework and transformation and you'll see that framework is a basic structure onto which other things can be built. These are, this is one of the key definitions. So if you've got this vast thing full of tools and techniques, methods, and approaches, it's no longer a framework. It's now a prescribed approach or a methodology. And uh, a method and a process, by the way, mean the same thing. Again, I, I, I go into these dictionary definitions quite a lot. And a methodology is just a collection of methods. Um, so when you get this giant picture full of these, so what we really want to look at are some of these basic techniques like Toyota Kata, like Scrum in its basic form. And these are a scaffold, a temporary support to learning. They help you to develop behaviors and certain characteristics, which may be useful in your context. But then we need to take the scaffolding away. 
because otherwise it starts to become like an endoskeleton. I think there was an exoskeleton, the one that's outside anyway. I always ex, get confused. Ex, yeah, yeah. Exo, is that right? Yeah. So it becomes an exoskeleton. Yeah. And what happens when you take the exoskeleton away? Everything else just collapses into a bunch of goo. And so if you become so dependent on the scaffold, then you can't remove the scaffold. And this is one of the challenges with so-called agile coaches who tend to be, and I'm not trying to be disingenuous here, but a lot of agile coaches are actually methods and tools coaches. They're not team coaches. There's a, a big difference between the two. And I know a lot of my colleagues are following, you know, International Coaching Federation courses and horse courses to try and break away from sort of teaching rigid methods and tools and actually sort of develop people and develop cognitions and develop uh, people, humans, and, and start creating a sort of what we call high-performing teams. So there's some work to, to change that and bring team coaching along. But what happens is if you, if you can't function without your coach, the coach has done a poor job. Because the idea of a coach is to develop you. And when I talk with Mike Rother, who is famed for Toyota Kata, which is basically, for those who aren't familiar with it, a, a scaffold, and he describes it as a scaffold, a scaffold to get people performing in, ha, uh, in a habitual way so that they're able, so taking like PDCA, the whole plan, do, check, act approach, and putting some discipline around it, so it's like scrum, if you like but putting some discipline around it so they get to behave in a, in a habit-forming way. But then you withdraw it. Otherwise, they're just experts at doing Toyota Kata. They're not experts at, at doing what they're actually needing to do. So we're using these as scaffolds to help people learn how to do things, but then we want to withdraw them, and coaching exactly the same. And he might use as a slide, and I, I, I'm working on a version of it for myself, which is the swimming coach. When you're kids, you start on the side of the swimming pool, kicking your legs, holding on the side of the pool. The coach is on the side of the pool, helping you. Then the coach transitions in the pool, may offer you some support, or you may have a float, and they're giving you technique support. Then as you develop better swimming technique, they're on the side of the pool, and ultimately end up at the end of the pool cheering you as you're competing. That's the gradual, you know, intensive coaching as a scaffold, gradually withdrawing that coaching as you become proficient and become high-performing. I don't see that happening in many organizations. I see the typical body shops and, and the consultants wanting to sustain their existence for the long term, and the teams aren't developing as high-performing teams. They're just going through the motions, and they tend to be groups of individuals that are thrown together that do some prescribed events occasionally during the week. Uh, and report out, and then something happens, but they're not able to function autonomously as a cohesive, complex, adaptive system within an organization. And I think we're failing them a little bit on that point. Sorry, Richard, I'm, I'm rambling yeah, no, no, a bit. But, but, but you can understand why that happens as well, because it's, it's sort of that's the game that's been set up, because the executives have been sold, well, you know, this is agile, and if your teams are doing X, Y, Z, then, then, then we'll know they're agile teams. And the leaders look around and like, well, they're doing this. Like, so, so it's like, what's the problem? But of course, the way you've laid out what we mean, for example, just for, just to take one of the, the strands, the, the distributed leadership, you're talking about something very different, right? You've got collective leadership emerging in the teams, providing an input to leadership, to the executive leadership. That, that being, I suppose, at some level, um, a means for them to make better decisions, right? So, so you're painting a very different landscape for what emerges as an organization, which has got nothing to do with anyone's do, you know, doing two-week delivery cycles or daily stand-ups or whatever the rest of it is. So 
so so you you can understand you know why why these you know quote agile transformations take that path no i mean you're absolutely right and and the i i made a comment the other day and, and it's funny the couple of couple of anecdotes i'll share with you when I was first back at Toyota in the USA, my career with Toyota started in Europe many years ago, and then I left and wandered the agile world for a while. Then I ended up back at Toyota as a consultant, then being hired into leadership role there, and then ultimately leaving to go and pursue sort of you know the evolution and development of this. But when I was first in at Toyota, and and this is no no again no criticism of everybody, it was just a, a, an observation of of what was happening. They were measuring the percentage of agility. So if, you know, 89% of people were using a Kanban board or, a, you know, a task board, as the scrum folks would call it, or a scrum board, they must be agile. They, they're considered being agile because they're doing a daily stand-up or, a, you know, in, in scrum, it's actually a daily scrum. And it's a daily planning meeting just to make sure everybody's very clear on that, not a report out. And, uh, and maybe they were using some post-it notes on a board. Ergo, they were agile which is complete nonsense, of course. So the use of a tool and the use of a method or a framework or an approach doesn't make you agile at all. It's the emergent outcomes of your agility. Can you change direction quickly? Can you pivot? Can you respond rapidly to the customer's needs, wants, desires? If geopolitical situations occur or if financial problems occur or the pandemic occurs, how quickly can you respond? How robust are you as an organization, which is your ability to resist such impacts and respond to them that's agility. It's an emergent property. Now, teams can become agile. There's agility at the team level, the product level, and the organizational level. And there may be other uh, levels, of, uh, uh, levels of agility people can sort of describe. But we're looking at this as an emergent property. So even back in you know, the bastions of lean thinking at Toyota, they, you know, people get these things wrong because they view agile as a thing you do rather than as a property to emerge. Same with culture, same with mindsets. They all talk about this agile mindset nonsense as if you can impose a mindset on somebody. Well, I, I got news for you. There's this thing called free will. And, and you know, it's a thing that's been around for a while. And, and the thing is this, that you know, ultimately mindsets emerge. You know, your mindset, Richard, is guess what? Your mindset. You may or may not agree with what I, I think. You may or may not align to a philosophy that the organization you work with or work within aligns to, um, but your mindset will emerge. Now, closed minds and open minds are a subtle nuance on that. We want open-minded people to sort of take many inputs and ideas and to evolve their thinking. But it's like culture. Culture is a product of our behaviors. Uh, and actually, Jeannie Ross from MIT, she talks about digital transformation and stuff. She's quite well known for this. And she's even said, and I've quoted it before, by saying that once you start talking about your culture as being the problem, you create a problem you don't know how to fix because culture is emergent. So if you're you know, a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker, a heavy drugs user, and you're violent and swear a lot, you will create a certain culture. It's a product of those behaviors. So if the companies and organizations don't like their cultures, they need to take a long, hard look at their behaviors. So if you're not getting the type of performance you desire from your people and your teams, is throwing status reports at them and ranting at them and beating the desk and, and telling them that they're, they're useless or worthless and need to do better, or I'm paraphrasing words, of course, here. They may be more subtle in their, in their sort of, you know, psychopathy in the way they do leaders and maybe they're Machiavellian in the background or something, but they, they may be uh, very subtle in how they're doing this, but 
that isn't going to increase the performance of the organization or the performance of the individuals. Uh, and so there's a whole heap of things we need to address, which is why in this sort of uh, central helix, and I, I physically put it here, I drew this thing originally, and I put leadership in the middle purposefully, even though these are interconnected, intertwined helixes, I wanted to represent that leadership is critically important throughout the organization at all levels. And if you take away this leadership helix, the whole thing collapses, because if you remove a strand of DNA, the whole thing ends up as a gooey mess. And so it's true of all any of those helixes, but I wanted the metaphor to be that leadership is critical, and if we remove it, the whole thing collapses. I'm going to throw it back to you, Richard, because I start to ramble after a while. No, I love it. It's good. No, uh, it uh, it makes a lot of sense. And now I think the other thing to then to just draw out to, to you know to round out this picture is is this complexity thinking piece. Um, so you said that was one of your motivations of the book, right? Was that you felt that was something that was missing from the current lean and agile, you know, thinking? Uh, you you draw a distinction between systems thinking and complexity thinking, and um, which I think might be important for people because I, you know, I, I encounter a lot of people and they think of oh, complexity. Oh, that's like thinking about the system as a whole and thinking about the whole system, and they kind of conf- sometimes conflate those those two ideas. So I just wonder if it's worth teasing them apart a bit for people's benefit. Here. Well, yeah, and you know. To be fair, I try and avoid too many comparisons because I've even had debates with system thinkers who say there's no such thing as a system, which sort of blows my mind a little bit. Uh, and, you know, and actually, and I'm going to pull up a note. I made a note earlier because uh, when, uh, and I always pronounce his name wrong, but when Burton Fly was talking about this in the original book on systems thinking, he had a problem with applying that those theories that he wrote to human systems, to biological or human systems. And then, of course, the cybernetics folks come come pounding in, and there's been lots of debate with our friend Dave Snowden we mentioned earlier on between cybernetics and system thinkers and, and, and various things. Uh, and, and, and Acoff is, is very simple, very, uh, if you, people should watch Professor Acoff's work, he's no longer with us, but they should look for his videos on YouTuber read his books because he's very pragmatic and very uh, basic of how he outlines what a system is, um, which is really just two or more things that are interacting with each other. So, um, but what one of the debates I had before I left Toyota, um, a let's call it a spirited debate with one of the executives there who was my boss, um, and uh, he, I'd published something online uh, in, in a, you know, a, a relatively well-known uh, website. Uh, I've been interviewed and stuff. And, and I'd said that you can't use root cause analysis with complex problems. And that he's, he's, he turned a different shade of, of red and he sort of, you know, smoke was coming out of his ears because, you know, Toyota folks are deeply loyal. And I, you know, I will not uh, besmirch Toyota at all. Toyota has its problems like every other organization, giant, you know, huge company with nearly 400,000 people globally. You can have a lot of complexity in that organization and a lot of struggles. But we talk about problems being reducible and irreducible. So when we look at root cause analysis, we're basically reducing things down to its single common denominator or at least a lower common denominator where we can say, if we fix that thing, all the other stuff will go away and never occur again. Now, you can go silly and end up, you know, you know, I, I do a silly thing in one of my classes I teach, which I, I get, I blame everything, you know, I get some broken glass on the ground and somebody's cut the foot on the ground and we do the whole point of course versus root cause analysis. 
and we end up blaming the president of the USA because of the glass on the ground, because it's all human behaviors and social conduct and education and blah, 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 leads back to the president, which is a bit stupid because we can't actually fix that. Well, we try, but we can't. And so, and I talk about as an import to the USA with my wielding my blue passport nowadays, you know, no taxation without representation and stuff. Um, And so, and you can't, don't complain about the president unless you vote, by the way. And so um, we, we sort of, I started having the debate about complex problems and saying complex problems are irreducible. You cannot reduce them back to a single root cause. And what you tend to find with complex problems, and these were defined by Churchman in 67 and and what he defined as wicked problems especially, is when you fix one thing or you treat one problem, several others spawn. And, and of course, in the lean world or in the Toyota production system world and the lean world that grew out of TPS teachings, they're all about applying simple thinking, simple problem solving, A3 approaches, which are all very, very powerful and very valuable to solve root causes. But when you get into really challenging and complex problems, we can talk about climate change and we can talk about the pandemic. We can talk about societal problems and things of that nature. Good luck trying to find a root, do root cause analysis on that. But we also realized that in certain organizations, we were seeing a level of complexity. Now, I mentioned earlier on, I think a lot of complexity is human derived. So I think that the problems in the majority of organizations, companies, or even nonprofits that we're actually working on, whether it's a product, a service, or some sort of delivery of some value, they're not actually inherently complex. They're actually quite predictable systems. They may be, using Kenevin as a a descriptor of complexity here, they may be complicated, which require expertise. So we need to be trained and skilled to use certain tools or techniques to build or create or craft something, or we might need collective experts to work together to solve a problem or to define a way of doing something, create a solution to a problem. But that's sort of, that's very, very good in the sort of lean world. But once we move out, and and this is traditionally most organizations are in this space. We then move into this complex world. There aren't many things that organizations do that are truly complex. Now, research and development, medicines, that type of thing, which is in the complex world, in the complex work. But most of the problems I've seen in most organizations I've consulted with and worked with, the complexity is how the organization is designed and how these people are communicating or rather miscommunicating or even worse, not communicating with each other. And actually, when you go in and start to look at this and you start to examine these challenges and these problems, you actually start to realize the problems aren't complex. But to actually get to understanding that, you need to deploy different techniques. There's no point going in there with a strongly agree, strongly disagree type survey or some you know, Myers-Briggs nonsense to try and figure out what's going off there. What you need to do is to start using new techniques like sense making. And I'm not necessarily saying sense make, which is a commercial product from uh, Dave Snowden's organization for uh, helping you to do sense making, but sense making techniques to make sense of things and to start and then narratives and storytelling and giving people a way to express themselves and tell you stories and things in a predictive, safe environment and an anonymous way. So we can actually make sense of the behaviors and what's occurring in an organization. And then we actually start to see the problems aren't that complex, but we need different tools to uncover them. 
And then hopefully we can start to move organizations more into the ordered world from this unordered and unpredictable world into this world here. But then, of course, there's the elements that there are things that are unpredictable. Nobody predicted the pandemic. Maybe we could have done some earlier weak signal detection had we been deploying some of the things. And there's been lots of programs and, and books and reports written on this. Maybe we could have detected some earlier signs and started to respond differently earlier, which is where organizations need to start learning these tools. Because once we've solved the organizational complexity, how work gets done, this is work as imagined versus work as done. So we improve how we get work done. We then need to start saying, okay, there are things out there that we can't predict, the unpredictable, the unknown unknowns. Maybe it's a pandemic. Maybe it's a, a conflict in, a, in another nation. Maybe it's the, the China-Taiwan sort of uh, tensions you know, in that part of the world and the microchip shortages, which will be extremely exacerbated if there's some sort of tension that escalates in that part of the world. So how do we deploy our sense-making mechanisms? How do we deploy our extended sensor network? How do we use our extended networks and our relationships? How do we build these teams and extended teams and extended sort of communication mechanisms so that we understand what's happening? And I'm sort of over here because I'm, I'm visualizing Kenevin in my head as I'm talking. But how do we deploy the tools here so that we don't end up in these wholly unpredictable and hideously complex realms? How do we learn to predict what's coming? And this is where organizations need to learn these tools. And to make the vocabulary simpler, it's the difference between you know, being robust and resilience. Robustness is how many punches can you take before you fall down. Resilience is how quickly you recover after you've fallen down. So how yeah. do we study and understand all these things that are hard to understand and detect and ensure we have an organization that's robust to resist them and resilient to respond to them when they occur. So this was the piece that was missing. Everybody's focused on, you know, root cause analysis, 5Y analysis, you know, A3 problem solving, blah, 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 Toyota, Lean, et cetera. All well and good. If you're in a world where you understand what you're doing and you've got predictable cause and effect. But when you're in this other world here, which is the geopolitical instability and all the other things, instability and other things we've talked about, how do we deploy mechanisms to monitor that and understand that so that we have an organization that can respond to it effectively before it's too late to respond to it? We see the calamities we saw with some of the financial impacts from the pandemic. I don't know if that's making sense to you, yeah, Richard. No, that, that, that is. But I would, the only thing I would say is that I think that, is it also not true that, yes, of course, you've got the anthro complexity and a lot of the problems that we um, experience in organizations are the behaviors of other people, right? And, you know, and often the, the technical problems that we need to solve, as you say, are relatively straightforward once we can get, the, you know, almost, of course, get the humans out of the way, which, are, you know, tug well, no, Actually, you, if we didn't yeah. have humans, we wouldn't have complexity, I'm just saying, but there you go. Yeah. Um, but also, are we not experiencing to some degree? And I don't know, I'm just thinking of the outages of, um, you know, Amazon and 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 some of the, you know, recently the the, the cloud outages. Um, the sense to which organisations are, are now interconnected through their te information technology, mm. um, those that in themselves are complex systems, right? So, so we, it seems to me that not only do we need to develop these skills to manage up the, the human beings within our organization or not manage them but to navigate and make the best out of the, the human capital that we've got but also 
also the, the problems we've got around are these increasingly complex technology platforms that we're relying on. So you just affirmed what I said before, it's all human derived. Because if you look at the the ironic outage of Fastly, which became slowly, um, which was the, the outage you, you're, you're uh, alluding to, which is where half the... And actually, I found myself having to delete my Netflix app on my Rokus and reinstall it, whether it was connected or coincidental, who the hell knows? I'm looking for some linear causality there. But the thing is this, we've created these intricate networks, these digital sub- ecosystems, which we're all now heavily reliant on. And if you believe all the nonsense that's coming out of the digital transformation world, we all need to digitize everything, you know? So I'm, I'm interested to see how it's going to work for poor old human beings. You know, Skynet is coming because this whole thing of digital transformation basically means you've got a bunch of, the correct word you should be using, by the way, is modernization. You've got some old stuff. You need to modernize it to make it relevant for your customers and to use the latest capabilities to deliver the best value you possibly can rather than this sort of notion of some transforming everything into a digital container. You know, I'm going to eat a digital ice cream when it gets hot and sunny. You know, hello, what does that actually mean? You know, uh, all right, they might use a square terminal uh, to take my payment for my ice cream as we try to get rid of all notions of cash. And I read today the central banks are talking about allowing, you know, cryptocurrencies to become a thing. So interesting world. But uh, so ask, ask me the question again, because I, I went off on a tangent. So I was there. making the case that, you know, that is it not true that in, that our technical infrastructure, our, you know, our information system infrastructure sure. now is in and of itself complex? So the challenge is that, and, and I don't want to oversimplify this because that would be wrong of me, but we tend to find that when we've created these intricate networks, and I use that metaphorically as opposed to meaning digitally, we've created these intricate networks of, of uh, sort of dependence on various systems and technology and organizations and structures and all the rest of it. But typically, they become inherently complex because of the relationships between the people who have built these infrastructures, these, these networks, these intric- intricate interconnected networks. And I'll give you an example. One of these organizers, I mean, one of the things that everybody talks about all the time is master services agreements, MSAs. So an organization reaches out to me and says, Nigel, I really, really need your help. It's really important. It's really urgent. I've been tasked by this by the CEO to make us all agile. And I'm telling you, and this is a real thing that's happening right now. Great. We have some conversations. We do some Zooms. And after 24, 48 hours, we already agree how we're going to work together. And then we get the MSA and then Nigel does some redlining and I send it back and I say to them, hey, listen, the way I've done this in the past is we get on Zoom together, you get your lawyers or whoever else is in procurement, vendor management, legal team or whatever on the call and we'll redline it and agree things in real time because guess, you're going to do that anyway. I mean, it's the right people. Oh, well, we don't work that way, Nigel. So when I was at Toyota Connected and I give great kudos to the procurement and vendor management folks there, we could do an MSA in five days, end-to-end, done, agreed, signed, delivered, ready to execute on. And we did that. And we got NDAs in an hour and, and various other legal agreements in, in a matter of two or three days. It didn't, the, the longest time was usually the people we were working with as opposed to our internal systems. <clears throat> Where if you look at big Toyota, the sister down the road, Toyota North America, typical MSA takes nine months to create. So, and I'm still I'm in this conundrum with one of my clients at the moment because they want to work with me and I want to work with them. But 
until the MSA police get that bit sorted out, that won't happen. Now, that's an example of lousy teamwork, poor communication, poor collaboration, no shared mental models. Uh, and if we can address that, then you start to simplify the way we do things. Now, if you extrapolate those sort of ideas to these giant global networks and these intricate relationships and all these complex intricacies we've created, they've been created due, through, in part, to poor leadership, poor empowerment, poor teamwork, poor alignment, and you start to solve these. Now, the, the, the other side of the coin is in with Japanese companies. They have some, I was talking about this yesterday on Twitter because somebody mentioned Nemowashi on Twitter. Nemowashi is the Japanese art of consensus building. Nemowashi actually translates to pre preparing the soil. And uh, the person on Twitter asked about that, about, you know, will that help to solve some of the, the, the complex sort of challenges we've got? And I said, actually, you're probably talking more about Kiretsu. Now, a Kiretsu is a loose association, a consortium of companies. Typically, Japanese companies have certain agreements of how to work. And that's really that extended network, that extended ecosystem, that developing those communications and the ways of working together. The challenge with that, and this is where you get complexity built in, is that that also limits innovation and creativity. Because where an individual company like an Elon Musk or somebody like that can just do things because they can, because he makes a decision and random stuff happens, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, to hell with the consequences, deep pockets and all that. Uh, when a Japanese company wants to do something like that, they can't operate uh, autonomously like that. They have to have the agreement of all the other members in the Koretsu because if, let's say, Panasonic decides to do something rather random, and Toyota's in the same Koretsu as Panasonic, that's a well-known relationship yeah. between Panasonic and Toyota, then they have to make sure they're not going to do anything that undermines Toyota or undermines another Japanese partner. And so whilst the, the idea of this sort of consortium works very well to solve some of the challenges you're talking about, it also can be limiting. So trying to find that right balance is where you get this sort of organizational complexity. But, you know, I used to say when I was a young and dumber sort of project manager back in the day, I'm going back 20 years now, I used to sort of say there was three C's of project management, communication, communication, and communication. And I still believe that now. The biggest challenge we have is that people aren't communicating. If you look at organizations, I mean, you see all the lean folks saying, go to Gemba, go to Gemba, you know, go and see for yourself. And, and I, I did some slides the other day which said, if, you're not, if you can't see it, you don't know what to fix. And so when we talk about things like value stream mapping and other techniques from the, the sort of lean or Toyota world, it's all about being able to see. And then you get this other piece where the communication tends to be Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoint decks or reports or this sort of, you know, interference layer often called, you know, the PMO or business analysis where the people up here want the information, the people down here have got the information, but they never actually speak to each other. It goes through this noise layer, this interference layer. And, and so part of what we're talking about in distributed leadership and, of course, the interconnection of team science is bringing those together with complexity to solve some of these complexities within organizations and some of the things you describe. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, no, 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 I can see that. And, and so, you know, a lot of our 
technological networks are actually uh, manifestations of some of these um, suboptimal human communication, right, that's created them, yeah? Yeah. And and to your point about the three Cs for for project manager, I actually saw a a report, it, it still sticks with me, where they did some analysis of uh, different, you know, modalities of project management you know, on a sort of scale from very linear waterfall and agile, and they found the best predictor of project performance wasn't which of these you use on a scale. It was it was how many interaction points were, the, the, the team were having. So you could be oh, you, you, to, be, yeah, you, you could be operating getting... in a, into a waterfall base, but if the project manager is talking to all their people every day and up. And, and and there's lots of communication around the Gantt chart and, you know, all the rest of it. You, you may well be better off doing that than trying to, you know, well, that's another. Well, we are getting into Conway's Conway law territory where, you know, if they, if they uh, I could paraphrase it, but basically if your organizational organizational hierarchy and structure, the more complex or the deeper that is in the layers, the deeper and more complex the systems you develop are because basically your system architecture becomes a mirror of your organizational structures. I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's, and that actually, it was Fred Brooks that coined Conway's law, not not Melvin Conway himself. But that's also when you get into organizations which have so many nodes of communication. And, you know, a team of five people have, I think, 10 ways, if I remember my data points, 10 ways of communicating, where you get a team of uh, a, a sort of, I think, 17, and you're into hundreds of ways of communicating. And so if you've got an organization that has a very complex organizational structure, the communication in that organization becomes nigh impossible. And decision-making, I mean, one of the tests I always use because it's just fun and it always resonates is how long does it take to get a new laptop in your organization? If it takes longer than a few hours, you have a communication problem because that shouldn't be. Laptops are commodities. They're what, they're a thousand books, a couple of thousand books, depending whether you're blessed with a Mac or whether you have to stay in the lowly world of Windows. And uh, you can see my bias coming in there. Um, but as he says, surrounded by Macs. But what happens is that, you know, you, you need this commodity to perform effectively, but you're not trusted to make the appropriate decision to ask for a piece of technology to help you leverage your capabilities and abilities and within the team, those abilities. So there's no trust of the individual. There's definitely no distributed leadership to make those decisions. And then we wait three or four weeks, maybe sometimes three or four months, why somebody somewhere clicks a few buttons in compliance and in auditing and finance and in da-da-da-da-da before you actually get technology to start figuring out how to build you a new laptop, which is typically locked down so tight that you can't actually do much with it um, because they don't trust you. Um, And so, and I often say to organizations, if you actually... Figure out whether you trust your people first. One of your big tests of a distributed leadership or empowerment is do you trust the people? Because if you don't trust the people, you need to go solve that problem first. Because no matter how many frameworks or method, methods or tools or other nonsense you throw at it, or how many coaches are there with a kumbaya stick every morning telling you to do things, it isn't actually going to solve anything if you don't trust the people doing the work. And if you think all your people are out to get you, you need to figure that out first before you start trying to solve some of the challenges we've been discussing yeah and you say that in the conclusion to go on no 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 go ahead sorry i was going to say you say that in the conclusion to the book right that uh we've got this uh this paradox right that that you've got uh ceos they know you, you quote um uh from one of the surveys that 
they, they know they need to um, move to a different way of organizing. Um, but yeah, they, they find it really difficult to let go. And that's... Yeah, I mean, I used to say the art of all good management was delegation. That was a, an earlier phrase in mine, maybe 20 years ago. And of course, we now understand that more to be empowerment. The art of a good leader is to empower those that look to them for leadership. And of course, a leader behaves in a way and displays characteristics and behaviors, <clears throat> which are those they want other people to follow. And a leader becomes a leader because they attract followers. A manager has, you know, people who are just obedient and do as they're told because they're fearful of job loss or punishment or not getting their bonus or other thing, other nonsense that you try and, you know, falsely incentivize them with. But a leader attracts followers and a leader doesn't have to be a person in authority, which is the bit they miss, you see. And I was just pulling up the, the, the Von Burton LaFay's 1972 quote, which he voiced his concern with systems theory being applied to social systems, giving rise to the fear that systems theory is indeed the ultimate step towards the mechanization and devaluation of man and towards a technocratic society. So that was 1972 from the originator, if you like, of systems thinking. I wanted to pull that up while we, while we because you'd mentioned it earlier. But this is, isn't this what we're, we're doing with frameworks? Aren't we, aren't we doing what he says there, this sort of mechanizing and devaluing humans by applying said framework and say, follow this blindly, thou shall be agile? Um, I don't know. I mean, is that what we're doing? Well, I think it's it's back to intent, isn't it? Because if you give people a framework and, and a tool and a set of toolboxes, and you say, "Hey, here's something interesting," you know, I trust you to figure it out. You know, make of it what you will, use what you like, and leave the rest. You know, um, my intent is that we have a more agile organization. You know, go play with it and see if it works. And if you don't like it, you choose something else. Right? If that's if that's your context for introducing it, then you're going to get a very different outcome. Uh, than one where it says, right, I want you to implement this and we'll be monitoring it and, you know, we'll be we'll be producing reports, uh, you know, percentage complete. You know, so it, it's all in the context, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a better, a better phrase for the leaders to say is, you know, all those in executive power would be to say, we desire to become more agile so that we can make better decisions, faster decisions and deliver value more effectively to those that perceive value in that which we do. We have a known collection of tools, methods, approaches, techniques, and we have some expertise in those, or we're going to hire some expertise to educate us and, and give us the skilling in some of these techniques. Then we're going to invest in our people, our human beings, our greatest assets, and we're going to develop these people so they're highly capable groups, societal groups, these high-performing teams, these effective teams, who will decide how to achieve this desire of making better decisions, faster decisions, building better products, and delivering value more effectively and quickly to our customers. And they will get to choose the elements that we've now skilled them in and become aware of to enable them to develop the best flow of value to our organization and achieve these agile sort of desires and outcomes and to make us a better, more effective organization. And that's the whole concept of the flow system is that we want them to be able to do this contextually in their own way. Even my friend Ritsu Shingo, the, the, the son is retired now, but he's the son of the, the famed Shigeo Shingo who worked with Taiichi Ono. And these are names from Toyota's history. 
who developed a lot of the techniques in the Toyota production system. Even Shingo San says, and he's in his 70s now, you have to find your own way. You can't just take a template just because, you know, I did some work with 3M Healthcare and they used some scrum at scale at the time and they found that very effective as a scaffold to get them going. They now don't use that anymore. They don't even use scrum as we define scrum anymore, but they found their own way. They used it to take them in the right direction and they found how they wanted to become more agile, more effective in their organizational construct or in their context. And it's the same in other organizations. If everybody, we can have hundreds of organizations doing safe brilliantly. Doesn't mean they're agile. Doesn't mean they're more effective. Doesn't mean they're delivering more value. It means they're all awesomely good at doing safe. So what I would rather than do is look at the safe big picture, which you can see I'm not a fan of, but you can look at the big picture. There are lots of aspects of it that are actually very good. And they should say, this will work for us. This will work for us. Let's take these and create our approach to the outcomes we desire as an organization, which I hope predominantly are focused on better value to the customer there. So, you know, flow is an evolving concept with knowledge gained from multiple fields of study. So you've got anthropology, biology, ecology, physics, psychology, team science, a lot of the things we've been talking about and you've mentioned. As an evolving state, a system's configuration must evolve, adapt, and transform into new structures that support delivering seamless processes free of inhibiting constraints, things that block the system or prevent it from functioning, that are capable of operating in disruptive and complex environments. You are not going to do that with a rigid, fixed framework. And flow is a collective social motion in which individuals or agents learn to understand and react to their environment to obtain the goals of delivering the value to the customer. And so we think it is the interconnected pathways of complexity thinking, distributed leadership and team science. And, you know, it's very gratifying because I've had people that have spent 40 years in the Toyota world or the lean world, whichever perspective, whether you're in or internal or external Toyota, have come to me and said, it was this triple helix, this idea that made it click for them. Everything just sort of clicked when they realized it wasn't that the things that they learned were wrong, is they hadn't brought them together and interconnected them and seen the contextual nature. And I give a shout out to, to, to Dan Ofchenik, who used to work with me at Toyota, and he's still involved with the, the, the work I'm doing in the flow system. I drew these three squiggly lines sort of, you know, showing this interconnection. And he happened to walk past my desk one day and he said, I love your DNA. And that's where the whole triple helix, the DNA of organizations was born. So it's these casual comments where this stuff comes around, but it, it has truly resonated with a lot of people. Richard. Yeah. You mentioned there one of the, the domains, you know, I, I, do, I don't want to let you go without talking about it because it, it fascinates me, but you, 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 the physics, right? And you're, you're doing yeah. some work right now, and I know you can't share all of it, but um, tell us a bit about constructor theory and how that fits in. <laughs> See, I got the paper open next to me just in case you asked about this. So I can't go into the detail, but for the benefit of the tape and the audience, I am incredibly excited and I genuinely do mean incredibly excited and actually and I'll, I'll call him out here our friend our mutual friend Dave Snowden where because he is uh, co-authoring a paper with myself and Professor John Turner now all due credit to, to John again as well because he's done the prolific putting the words on the paper John and I spent 
uh, a number of days uh, talking about constraints, talking about different things and whiteboarding this. And as I point over to my whiteboard off to my right, and we drew lots of pictures and we did lots of work on how we could solve and make things better for organizations. And then John had been studying constructor theory, which is quite new theory that's come out from a couple of very well, well-known professors. And, and it's sort of challenging, I say challenge, it's challenging a bit the laws of physics. It's not breaking the laws of physics, but it's challenging them to be looked at in a different way. And so we started looking at constructor theory in depth, and, and John's done deep research and synthesis of all the peer-reviewed literature and various other things that, that are out there. And then Dave has been acting as a consultant and uh, using lots of vocabulary, which has me scratching my head and making notes, and we record the course so we can go back and figure out what was being said during I the conversation. I developed a glossary once for some yeah. clients who just had a meeting, you know, which we took Dave into is- a meeting with Dave. Dave has sat on my sofa in my house and we've been having a, uh, an adult beverage after a meal and, and he's been talking to me and I genuinely have sat there with my iPhone Googling words he was using, <laughs> what he's talking about. Um, and so, but I mean, I'm truthful. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, and language is important and that's what he says. But so he's been consulting and reviewing the content of the paper. Let me tell you, Dave got physically animated and visibly excited at the content of the paper. So much so, he's gone back and started rethinking some of the way he describes Kinevin because of constructor theory. Now, I won't tell you any more of that because that would be too revealing. But we are looking at information as the higher level of flow in a system. We believe that energy follows information, not the other way around. And we're not talking about data and bits and bytes in a computer system when we mean information. This is not information technology. This is information as the key to life, the key to hierarchy, is the key to how we communicate and interact and how systems actually work and interact together. Um, and we're looking at some of the theories around that. We're looking at some of the laws of physics. We're looking at how we can apply constructor theory within organizations to help them function more effectively. I'm being very guarded in the words I'm using because I don't want to give away the game before the paper's in the peer-reviewed journal. It's up to 10,000 words right now. It'll probably be about 12,000 by the time it goes for edit and trimming. Um, We are going to propose, we've we've come up with some new propositions. We are going to propose a brand new model, which we, a theoretical model, which we, we can think can be proven in practice, which will help organizations solve many of their challenges which constrain their current systems. There's not a lot more I, I can say about it, Richard. But, but, I mean, well, just tell us what, what, is, what is constructor theory in lay terms? Well, I'm, I'm going to not tell you very much, but you basically got a constructor, a construction, and a substrate. And uh, I, I'm not going to tell you, because if I tell you too much, I will start giving the game away on this. And, uh, and let me just see if I can give you something that might be... Uh, constructor theory describes transformations. Transformations can either be possible, those that can be caused, and impossible, those that cannot be caused. And constructor theory, I'm just reading some of the notes I wrote in my paper here. Constructor theory is different from traditional physics that makes predictions based on a set of initial conditions. In contrast, constructor theory views the dichotomy between what we can be caused and what cannot be caused, 
along with the description of why for each. Construct a theory is about what can be done and what can be made in physical reality. Not going to tell you anything more. That's just en- that's enough tease you're going to get. But think about information controlling energy. I'd recommend some of the listeners to go read about constructor theory. Uh, maybe watch a couple of videos from Chiara from uh, the, one of the Italian professors who's responsible. You just put constructor theory into YouTube. You'll find some mind blowing conversations in there. Uh, one of the other famous people who was involved in this gentleman, by the way, of Deutsch, D E U T S C H, Deutsch. Uh, he's one of the, the, the other, he's the other key person behind the, the sort of origins of constructor theory. Um, I'd suggest people look at, you know, start looking about information systems. And I don't mean computer systems, looking at information uh, as being the sort of uh, the, the thing that constructs life. And I'd also probably suggest they have a little read about things called counterfactuals, because that may be another little sort of guide for them to do that. Um, what else could I tell you that might give you some uh, clues for your listeners to go and have a read about? I'd also look at fitness landscapes. That's something that Dave Snowden has talked about quite a bit. The fitness of organizations, that's something we're examining as well. Um, and so, you know, part of our theory, we are concerned with social systems capable of learning, self-organizing and adapting to their environment. So that's very much in the theme of the flow system. And these, because social systems are complex adaptive systems and can adapt through emergent processes. Hey, agility is emergent. Think about that. Uh, resorting in the system repurposing itself into a new coherent structure to sustain its fitness. An organizational system remains fit if it can sustain its existence while also adapting to environmental threats. So we come back to some of that conversation earlier about sense-making and understanding these things that are unpredictable and unknown unknowns and how your organization can be resilient or robust in defending, attacking, or dealing with those systems. So that's as much as I can really tell you on the paper. Uh, we're hoping that it will be uh, in a, within a journal, at least accepted for publication within the next two or three weeks. There's some final revisions of the paper to get it to its final uh, thing. And John's working on a, a, a rework of the conclusion or some additional material in the conclusion. There is a new model. I'm just looking at things. We're proposing a, a new model. Uh, which will have praxis and enable training in this as well. Um, uh, you know, we think it's an important paper. We think it's something that nobody else has considered. Uh, and, you know, we could get left out of court or we could be applauded and lauded for it. We just don't know. But, you know, hey, this is this is how we look. This is what's important. When I started the journey with the flow system, I started to realize that what was important was education, not certification. It was about learning and evolution and developing, not learning how to repeat the Scrum Guide back and tell people how to do, you know, 353 of Scrum or whatever people want to call this. What it was really important was to really truly understand systems, complex systems, complexity thinking. Complexity thinking is really the study of complex, complex adaptive systems. We humans are complex adaptive systems. We do things that are unpredictable. Uh, and therefore, it's studying how complex adaptive systems evolve, interact, and work, and how we can guide them and provide some management around them. We can't fix them. I mean, it's, there's no fixing of complexity. There's just management within complexity. Um, 
And I started to realize it was actually studying and understanding and gaining knowledge in a lot of these different disciplines and, and things we discuss in the book within the flow system, the free guide online as well. And, and it was actually helping us to make sense of our world. So that's that sense making piece coming in. In, in team science, we talk about situational awareness, which is understanding what's happening around you. Uh, Dave Snowden talks about, and I've mentioned one of my talks, the adjacent possibles that we tend to miss because we're so damn blinkered and following one, uh, one path here, this linear path. We miss all these adjacent possibles and things that, hey, this stuff's useful, you know. So, and that's situational awareness. And then we talk about sense making, which is the ability to detect and, and, and synthesize and understand everything that's happening around us. So I started to realize that actually learning and understanding was far more important than, than, than some methodology or framework. And then helping organizations understand that they are complex adaptive systems, that they're full of humans. And humans are these very important, most important assets and these most important resources. And actually understanding how we interact and communicate and function and work together was far more important. And so the latest research is extending that even further. And, and I can tell you, we are incredibly excited about it. So fingers crossed it yeah. gets into the peer-reviewed literature very soon. Well, even just introducing that idea of, you know, that distinction of energy and in, in, in information, and if information's upstream of energy, then, you know, it's already leading me to think, well, how often am I focused on the energy in a given situation? You know, the, the block, the blockers, you know, energy in terms of, you know, the emotions of, of, of people perhaps involved in a situation, um, you know, energy in terms of, um, physical movement of something or, or movement of flow of data or physical data, right? And, you know, that's often the way that I orient myself in terms of thinking about challenges that exist. And it's like, just, just the way that you frame that has me think, well, how often am I thinking about, okay, well, what are the, what's the information flow here? What are the information sources that people are tapping into? Like, you know, what, what, what are people's contexts in terms of the, of the information that they're exposed to? And it, it, it it, intuitively, as I said to you before the call, that sounds like that's a rich theme. So, you know, I very much look forward to what comes uh, out of So I'm just pulling up a couple of the citable quotes I, I, I'll give you just because they're, they're, they're citing and, and we can start to wrap up. But, you know, one, this isn't our, this is a citation, give me, but a key implication of the people who wrote this, their research or their analysis is the importance of individuals sharing a common set of biological reactions in shaping the universal scaling laws observed across hierarchical levels. Scaling laws often emerge in systems where universal mechanisms operate across different scales, yielding the same effective behavior independent of the specific details of the system. So when you start to think about scaling laws in physics and people are trying to scale systems within organizations, Information has a hierarchy. We talk about that in the paper as well. We start to bring together. So we take to start to take some of the theory, the academia from the physics world and some of the other biological world we've been looking at. And we start to make that relevant in organizations, organizational design, how organizations are structured, how they manage information within their systems and information being the controller of energy in a system. And energy is, is controlled by information is, is one of the things. And that's not just our work. This is peer-reviewed work of other scientists and other people in, in, the, in the world that we're, we're citing. Because a paper typically is, what does the literature say? How do we synthesize that? And then here's our 
propositions, our model, our conclusions, our theories, blah, blah, blah. So this is sort of the the flow it takes. You're talking to a business guy here. You're not talking to an academic. If you had John Turner on here, he would be far more eloquent than I am in explaining this. No, but it's great. You've given us a few, um, you know, you've given us a, a few breadcrumbs. Yeah. yeah, and we have a flow community on Slack and we've been giving a, uh, uh, there's a lot of people in there and we've been dropping a few breadcrumbs there and aggravating the hell out of the deep thinkers <laughs> because they're, they're, I mean, literally they're off reading books on physics and reading the books on constructive theory, farming all the information they can to try and discern what it is we're talking about. But I can tell you, it is, it is, I'm extremely excited now. I mean, of course I'm excited because I'm part of authoring it, but I'm excited because I think of the possibilities that it unlocks and where other people will take what we're proposing and actually do a lot with it. And we learn continuously because of the feedback from others and the engagement of others. It's not about us telling the world we have all the answers. We certainly don't. What we're doing is creating an ecosystem, an environment, a holistic approach to understanding what flow means so people can evolve that, continue that learning and start to make sense. And, you know, there is there are some built-in challenges in, in corporations, you know, narcissism, power, greed, all these sort of things that we see. Um, and some of that will be hard to change. Just because we're right doesn't mean we'll fix anything or change anything, yeah? Uh, but I've given up trying to fight and change things. I'm, I'm now at the point, look, I'll teach you how to see. I'll teach you to learn to see, paraphrasing the title of a famous book from Toyota, The Toward of Toyota. I'll teach you how to learn to see. You have to choose to act. If you choose to ignore what you see and choose not to, ag- not to act, you made that decision. Hey, that's free will. But at least I taught you to learn to see. And then when you come back sometime later and go, well, why aren't we getting the benefits? Well, I'll say, do you remember when I taught you to learn to see and you saw and you did nothing? That's why you're not getting the benefits. And so what I'm trying to do is help people to elucidate things, to help people to see better understand some of these challenging topics because some of this stuff is challenging academically and intellectually to learn but if you can start to understand them at least and i tend to try and explain things at a a simpler level than the academics because i'm not an academic i'm not i haven't got a phd like some other people like my my colleague john but um i try to help people understand in more basic terms and basic phrases and and I'm seeing, I mean, I'm getting scrum masters call me. I'm getting agile coaches call me. I'm getting people, I, I've had everybody from executives to junior people at Toyota calling me over the last two years saying, Nigel, I really need your help. I need to, you know, what you're talking about, I'm seeing, I'm, I can see the challenges. I can see, we're trying to, they, they want us to, they're telling us this is the message of the what they want us to do. But these are all the things that are inhibiting and preventing us to do, preventing us from doing that. And it's all the same things. I mean, it, it, it all smells the same wherever you look at it, you know. And so uh, we're ha- trying to help people to understand why and give them the or to equip them with figuring out how to solve things or to approach things. But without saying, here's a guaranteed recipe, a playbook, a prescription, which is, as I say, not the most popular approach. If I come up with some if I called this a framework and said, Here's a playbook of 20 steps, follow this. I'd probably be making money like Leffingwell. But right now, I'm not because I'm saying that's nonsense. And whilst there's some great ideas out there and some great constructs out there, you actually have to figure it out for yourselves and you need to get the support you need and get the knowledge you need. So this is this education versus certification. 
actually truly understand what you're doing. And then you'll actually start to solve some of the challenges you've got. And you'll start to find that actually your world isn't as complex as you think it is. Richard. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. And so that, that for me serves an invitation for people to go, to go read the book. And as you say, there are, you know, it may be intellectually challenging, you know, in places, but it's, um, that's the edu- you know, that's the education, right? It's, it, it's, it's there, it's available. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I will, of course you also have the courses for people, <laughs> perhaps who aren't readers and well, yeah, want to be I mean, stepped through this stuff. They want, if they want the training, I mean, we have, if you go to flowguides.org, so flowguides.org, you can get the flow guide for free online. There's a link on the bottom left of the main screen, which will, you can click on to join the Slack community. There's about 600 thinkers in there. Dave Snowden and lots of other eminent thinkers are in there. So you can go and talk about some of this stuff and explore. And then there's links if you want to look at training and, and doing, you can do online training. We're looking at bringing back in-person training because of, but my, I want to make this very clear. My focus isn't on uh, selling training. My focus isn't on selling another bunch of useless certificates. This is not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is disseminating the knowledge, the understanding, the expert, expertise and experience. And, and I want to help people do better. If you can't afford to buy the book, you can read the book for free on the University of North Texas's website. Now, you have to read it an image at a time. It's a, it's a, you can't download it and, and make endless prints of it, you know, for copyright reasons. But you can read the book free of charge. You've got the flow guide that's online free of charge. You can join the Slack community free of charge and interact with a lot of real deep thinkers and some am- amazing conversations in there. And we do pay for the Slack community. So we preserve all the threads and all the deep discussions in there. So it is a commercial Slack community, you, do, you don't pay. I mean, it's free for anybody to, to access and use. Um, and then if people want to extend that learning, the flow system training is available and people are described as a mini MBA. I can't give you the, the, the full information, but the flow system is about to become a, a MBA concentration with a major US university. And that will be announced later this year. So you'll actually be able to take an MBA in the flow system. Uh, wow. And so it, it's it's not this throwaway sort of you know here today gone tomorrow commodity. I I wanted when I left Toyota I wanted to develop something that was a key differentiator to all the sort of pyramid selling schemes out there you know add-on certificates and I wanted to develop something that addressed the gaps the the the, the challenges in people's learning and understanding. And I wanted to provide them with something to help them and drive them forward. And I wanted something, I hope, that lasts as a legacy that becomes valuable and drives that right level of thinking. This will evolve like everything evolves. Uh, and so they were my motivations. Now, I'm not worried about earning a living. So I'm not here to, you know, the training and selling training is not my primary business making knowledge available and sharing that knowledge and helping organizations and companies evolve and actually function beyond the agile echo chamber is what I'm more interested in. And I hope it's, I hope it's valuable to people. I hope we've created something that is uh, a, a source of knowledge and learning and understanding. And I hope that it will help them to continue to evolve that understanding and learning. And, and as I say, we are attracting interest from not just the corporate world, but from individuals from practitioners from academia and I'll be over in Budapest later this year because there's a university in Budapest is also running three semesters on the flow system. And I'll be there as yeah. a guest, guest lecturer 
later in September, uh, presenting to that. And that's September this year, 2021, depending when people end up watching this. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so things are gathering in the right right direction. So I'm, I'm very pleased that we've actually produced something that people are finding valuable. Yeah. And I can say, having been around a lot of these ideas for a number of years, I was finding nuggets in this book, right? That, that were new, new to me. So, um, you know, it's, it's a comprehensive uh, exploration of the science. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, Dave West, who's the CEO of Scrum Orcus, for my sins, I'm still a professional Scrum trainer. It's a, it's a good thing to be. Um, he said, he, he read the book. <laughs> I'm trying to paraphrase, but he said to me, he says, that I said, I had to read it more than once. And he says, he says, it's the best book ever written on this topic. Uh, and I don't know whether that was a compliment or whether it's saying it's the only book ever written on this topic, but he basically said it was immensely comprehensive. And, uh, and Dave's a fellow Briton, and as of you, and, and we tend to find that, uh, you know, reading things that are somewhat academic to be, to be difficult. We didn't want the book to be overly academic, but we didn't want it to be overly simplistic. It was a real fine balancing act. And, the book is designed to teach you to begin with and then to become a reference. And there's two indexes in the book. One at the beginning is a, a learning index and the one at the back, which is a reference index. Uh, and, it, and you know, Richard, because you've read it, it contains extensive references and sources to go and follow certain paths. So if you pick up something you enjoy in complexity or distributed leadership or team science or even in the, the flow and lean thinking, you can find references where you can follow some paths of that. The book is extensively referenced. Um, and you can go find it, uh, elements of it on Google Scholar as well. So the, it, we hope it is, as I say, a valuable reference and a valuable tool for people to expand their learning and comprehension and to help develop their careers and help organizations evolve and function better as a complex adaptive system. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the place to go if you if you if you're serious about this, right? If you've got a deep interest, then you know, start here. Don't don't start with one of the frameworks. That's fantastic. Kind of easy to say so. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Nigel. And um, yeah, no, this is uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. We'll put all of the links, uh, you know, obviously into the description. Um, I'm going to join that Slack group. That sounds that sounds fantastic. And um, yeah. Enjoy the Thanks, rest of Richard. your day in uh, in Texas. <laughs> I appreciate it. Take care. Have a wonderful time. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.